0: Good morning, good morning. All right, welcome, it's good to be with you guys. Uh, If this is your first time here, my name is Garrison and I'm the pastor here at Veritas Dayton. We're very glad that you're here. Um, If you want to turn in your Bibles to Galatians 5, Galatians 5, we're going to be looking at verses 16 to 25. Continuing in our sermon series on Paul's letter to the Galatians, if you don't have a Bible with you, there um, are little white paperback Bibles on the edge of each bench. Um, you can grab one of those, uh, turn to page 567, and uh, that'll get you where you need to go. You can go to Galatians 5, that's the chapter number, it's the bigger number, and then uh, 16 to 25, those are the smaller numbers, those are the verse numbers you don't have a Bible, take that one home. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that home and make it your own. Also, um, if this is your first time here, you received a bulletin when you walked in, or you should have, and those have um, something called a Connect card on them, and uh, that's just a way for us to learn a little bit about you and um, know how we can get you... Uh, connected with what God is doing here in our church family. And so if you would take uh, just a few moments, fill that Connect card out and uh, let us know um, what, uh, how we can get a hold of you and, and how we can uh, get connected with you, meet up with you, grab you a cup of coffee, something like that, uh, that would be wonderful. In addition to that, there's also prayer requests uh, a, a section for prayer requests on the connect card. If you would uh, fill that out, jot a few things down, turn it into uh, myself or another leader that you see here or um, at the welcome table out here, um, turn turn that in in any of those places. We'd love to be able to know how to pray for you this week. Uh, we count it an honor to be able to do so. All right, let's dig into Galatians five sixteen to 25. Uh, we stand when we read God's word out of respect and honor for God. And so if you would... Um, if you would stand with me as we read from God's holy and precious word. And let's, let's listen, uh, pay close attention. We want to listen with reverence and joy uh, because we believe that this is God's voice. This is God speaking to us. And so we want to listen to what he has to say. This is the most important thing that we will hear all week is God's voice speaking to us. So let's listen now. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we believe that you are present covenantally present with us now as your word is read and proclaimed and as we respond in prayer and praise and so would you help us now to be uh, to have hearts prepared to receive from you would you grant repentance in us would you deepen our trust in you and would you fix our eyes on jesus the author and the finisher of our faith. Help us to behold him in all of his glory and beauty and to die to ourselves so that we can pick up our crosses and follow him. Would you let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can have a seat. So I came across an article a while back called, uh, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God, written by Matthew Paris. Uh, in it, he, he tells of this profound change that comes through the spread of Christianity uh, as he witnessed it in Africa. Uh, the tagline of the article gives it away. He says, missionaries, not aid money, are the solution to Africa's biggest problem. He says in the article, he says, It confounds my beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. He goes on, Now a confirmed atheist, I've I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. He says he used to think that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But this doesn't fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It also is transferred to his flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely, and which I cannot help observing. Now, that's a wonderful observation. And the fact that that Paris is the one that's observing this, acknowledging this, is astounding. And it just gives rise to the question: what what, what is it that he is observing? What, what is he? What is he acknowledging? What is he observing here? Is he observing people being uh, undertaken by a new version of morality? Is he, is he observing uh, the, the benefits of political reform uh, in these nations? Is, is he observing enlightenment due to education? What, what is it that he is observing in the behavior and in the lives of the citizens of Malawi where he is stationed? Over the next three Sundays, uh, we're going to be taking a hard look at Galatians 5:16 to25 here to tell us exactly what this change is. And this morning, I, I want to tell you, it's not education or morality or benefits that come from political reform as good as those things can be. Rather, it's death. It's crucifixion, what- what's often referred to as the mortification of sin. This change of heart that Paris is talking about here is the result of the reality that as Paul puts it here in Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with all of its passions and desires. This change in character that he is describing in this article is the change that takes place within the crucified people who follow their crucified king. You're probably familiar with this passage here in Galatians. So often, we approach this text, we see this text as, as help in our self-improvement project. We look at this list of virtues that Paul mentions here in Galatians 5 and this He calls them the fruit of the Spirit, and and this list of vices here called the works of the flesh. And we think, okay, simple enough. I I need to stop doing these things and start doing these other things, and, and everything will be better. I will be improved. Again, as if Christianity is nothing more than a change in morality. As if Christianity is nothing more than this therapeutic religion that does nothing more than improve self. It's not about self-improvement. This text is not about self-improvement. It's about self-execution. It's about making war and putting your sinful nature to death. This text is about how the way of the flesh is an ever-present danger and how because of this, we must follow the way of the cross as those who belong to Jesus. And that's the big idea for this morning. The big idea for this morning is... That the flesh, the way of the flesh, is an ever-present danger. Therefore, we must follow the way of the cross as those who belong to Christ. And we'll look at that in, in two sections. Number one, the way of the flesh, and two, the way of the cross. Let's jump in. First, the way of the flesh. Last week, we learned about what Paul means when he uses this word, flesh, and we recognize that, that he's not merely talking about your body, okay? The, the, the Christianity affirms the goodness of the body. Uh, we don't. Christianity is, is not a worldview in which we think that the body is bad. We believe that God created physical matter and that it's good and that one day we will have a body in heaven, that Jesus himself even took on a human body. Physical matter is good. That's not what Paul is saying here. Rather, when he uses the, the term flesh, he's talking about, the old Adam within us, uh, our, our sinful and depraved nature, that which is within us that doesn't want what God wants. Or to put it more strongly, that which is within us that hates God and hates what God wants. In our flesh, we rebel against God and his good and gracious will. And this is, this is the Bible's diagnosis of what is wrong with us. Okay, this is not the only problem. It's not the only thing that's wrong with us and with the world. But at the core, this is our biggest problem. It's that we're fleshly. We're fleshly. That we are sinful and that we are born this way. We are all born naturally. We are born sinful. Jesus says in John 3, 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Meaning that we are born naturally corrupt and rebellious. The church for for centuries has referred to this as original sin. Original sin, it means that we are born having no inclination toward pleasing God. We're born hating God and living in rebellion against Him. We're just naturally born this way. And when the opportunity comes for us, when we come of age, when the opportunity comes for us to actually commit sins, become actual transgressors ourselves, we most certainly do. Or in in Ephesians 2.1, Paul even goes as far to say that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're born dead on arrival, so to speak, dead to the things of God. And it can be deceiving because physically, biologically, we're very much alive. but, But spiritually, all of us are born dead to the things of God. We are rebels, every single one of us. You know, we, we have a third child on the way right now, still in the womb. Uh, we, he's coming in January. We're very excited about it. But we're already praying, Lord, take away his heart of stone. Raise him from his spiritual death. We don't have to wait and see if he's going to be a sinner. We, we know that he will be because the Bible and experience tells us that it's true that we are born corrupt, morally corrupt. We are born as guilty rebels. And the language that Paul is using to describe that nature, that spiritual deadness, that rebellion here, is is the flesh, fleshliness. Now, that isn't the whole story for those of us who are Christians. That isn't your whole story, Christian. Paul goes on to say in that scripture that we just read from Ephesians 2, he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Meaning that if you're in Christ, you have been born again. If you are in Christ, you have been given resurrection life. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You have a new nature. There's there's a new nature within you that trusts God and, and wants what God wants. And this text tells us and our very own experience tells us, though, that that nasty old Adam, that flesh, even, even though we are given a new nature, we are made alive in Christ, that, that old Adam, that, that fleshly nature, that rebellious nature is still within us. You know, By God's one-way love and the power of the Holy Spirit, we have a new nature. We've been born again in Christ. God's Spirit lives within us, but we still walk with this, this dark passenger He's this this dark passenger riding in the car with us, and he's in the backseat, but he's a backseat driver. He's giving us wrong directions all the time, and sometimes we listen to him. You know this, Christian. Despite all of your attempts to live a a godly life, you still face temptation to sin. And not only do you face temptation to sin, you, you actually sin. You do wicked things, sometimes Sometimes on accident, but sometimes you do wicked things on purpose, knowingly do wicked things on purpose. Our thoughts and our desires, they're still corrupted, and sometimes these things can, can loom so largely in our, in our minds and hearts that we wonder if we're really even truly Christians at all. Paul knows this. And he writes to the Galatians, these oddly comforting words. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. The flesh, at times, he, it, it keeps us from obeying the spirit. And the spirit, at other times, he, he keeps us from obeying the flesh and living according to the flesh. There's a, there's a war going on within us, isn't there? A constant conflict raging in your mind and your body and your, your soul and your heart. Flesh against spirit, sin nature against regenerate nature, and it keeps us from doing the things that we want to do. We'll never be completely free from sin on this side of death or Christ's return because we still have this flesh. And so don't don't despair. Be be aware of this conflict. Don't despair. Fight back and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's an ever-present danger. But then how do we know if we're walking by the flesh or walking by the Spirit? How do we know if we're walking by the flesh or walking by the Spirit? How do we know if we're gratifying the desires of the flesh or, or keeping in step with the Spirit? Paul says it's actually rather simple. If you're walking in the way of the flesh then you will be manifesting these behaviors that he calls the works of the flesh. And if you're walking in the Spirit, you will be manifesting these virtues that he calls the fruit of the Spirit. And we'll get into the fruit of the Spirit in the, the coming two weeks. Uh, looking forward to that, and, and we'll get into what's called vivification and, and all that in the coming weeks. But, but today, we're looking at the works of the flesh. Paul writes, Now the works of the flesh are evident. And then he names off this list of, of 15 vices, 15 vices. And it's, it's not a comprehensive list, but he gives it as a kind of helpful diagnostic tool. He, he gives it so you can take this list and you can consider, consider your behavior, take, uh, take, uh, inventory of the state of your soul, and, and ask yourself if you're making a practice of living in this way. The first three that he mentions are within the category of sexual sin. First, he mentions sexual immorality, which is sort of a junk drawer term used to describe any sort of sexual sin, but especially uh, sexual intercourse outside of a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Uh, And then he mentions impurity, which is even more of a junk drawer term, Uh, but, but... Uh, It's speaking to any sort of sexual impurity, lust and pornography and crude uh, sexual joking and and the like. Then he names sensuality, sensuality, which is not only speaking to sexual immorality or impurity, but being uh, particularly overt and public about sexual sin, being indecent. The next section he names uh, these two behaviors, uh, the next section he he names here, we can categorize as the, the, the false worship. He he, he starts with idolatry, which of course just means worship of of anyone or anything other than the one true God. Um, Trusting in, finding your identity in, finding your ultimate comfort and hope and security in something other than Jesus. Uh, Next is sorcery, which would mean any sort of worship of of Satan or demons, black magic, the occult, uh, reading Harry Potter books, uh, and the like. I'm just kidding. You can read Harry Potter books, I guess. The next section is the longest section in the list. Uh, It's in the category of what we could call social sins. Fleshly living wreaks havoc, murderous havoc on Christian community. He names these eight behaviors, starting with enmity, which is hatred and hostility. For others, whether it be overt and public or, or private and, and discreet, strife, which is being quarrelsome and argumentative, jealousy, uh, sinfully desiring what others have, loving things, possessions, money, homes, cars, loving these things more than you love people, fits of anger. Rage-filled outbursts, uh, v- physical violence, verbal violence, flying off the handle fits of anger. Rivalries. This is like selfish ambition, always wanting to be the best, always wanting to be on top and stepping on others to get there. Dissensions, having like a, a party spirit, an elitist mentality compromising the unity and the witness of the church. Divisions, this is actually the, the word that we get the word heresy from. You know, serious theological error that divides and separates the church. Envy, being pained and unhappy when others succeed and do well. And then the last two he names here are in the category of, of what we could call carousing. He names them drunkenness and orgies. Now, of course, the Bible doesn't forbid Christians to drink alcohol, but it does forbid drunkenness, in the same way that the Bible doesn't forbid eating food, but it does forbid gluttony. But he, he, he mentions drunkenness, condemns getting wasted, getting plastered, getting hammered, getting sloshed, as the kids say. And, and orgies. It's not simply like sexual Uh, parties, but it it just means like wild parties of of all kinds, uh, including the type that uh, people in the region of Galatia would have taken part in within their pagan temples. And Paul concludes this list with saying, and things like these, meaning this is not an exhaustive list, you know, Paul could keep going here, But the point is not to give us uh, an exhaustive list of particular sins to watch out for as much as the point is to give us an idea of the type of lifestyle that these works of the flesh represent. The, The only type of life that the flesh leads to, the only type of life that our sinful nature produces is this immoral, this idolatrous, this unloving, this undisciplined life. And Paul goes on to say, I warn you, As I warned you before, when I came to you before, I told you this, and I warn you again now, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Guys, that's that's alarming. He's saying that those who make a practice of this kind of living, living in this way, doing these types of things, will not inherit eternal life, everlasting life, when Jesus returns to judge. Those who make a practice of living in this way, of doing these types of things, will, at the final judgment, stand condemned before the throne of God. If you make a practice of these things, you will face eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire. Good works will not get you into the kingdom. Only Christ can do that. But living in the flesh and in the works of the flesh rather than repenting and trusting in Christ will most definitely keep you out. Now, does he mean that anyone who's ever done these sorts of things is going to hell? No, of, of course, anyone who has done these sorts of things deserves to go to hell. But he's saying that those who make a habitual practice of doing these sorts of things will not inherit the kingdom. He's he's not speaking of those who used to do these things but have repented and trusted in Jesus. He's not speaking of those who still have the occasional lapse, but to those of us whose lives are dominated by sin. Those who do not confess sin. Do not repent of sin. Do not fight sin. Those who comfort or coddle the flesh by living in license or those who merely try to foolishly control the flesh through legalism. He's talking about those who live in the way of the flesh rather than in the way of the cross. Because the call is not to coddle or comfort the flesh. The call is to, through, the call is to crucify the flesh. The call here in Galatians 5.24 is to crucify the flesh with all of its passions and desires. Last week we talked about how the gospel call, this effectual call that we receive when we hear the gospel, and the the Spirit uh, enters in and, and makes the call effectual, that this call is a call into freedom. And it most definitely is. But it's also a call to death. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it in his wonderful book, The Cost of Discipleship, he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls you, he calls you to pick up your cross, your instrument of execution, and to crucify your flesh with all of its passions and desires, to execute your flesh, to die to yourself, to nail your flesh up on those wooden beams, and to do so every single day. As Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Or as Paul says in, in Romans 6, 11, consider yourselves dead to sin, die to sin. Guys, we are in this mortal combat with our fleshly nature. With our dark passenger. The, you know, the spirit, if you're in Christ, the spirit is in you. He's given you a new nature to fight and war against the old Adam. And this, and this war, there, there will be no surrender in this war. There will be no peace in this war. There will be no truces in this war, no negotiations here. There will be no peace between the two, between the flesh and the spirit. The Holy Spirit is at war in you, and he is at war in you to put your flesh to death. John Stott says about this, to take up your cross was our Lord's avid figure of speech for self-denial. Every follower of Jesus is to behave like a condemned criminal and carry his cross to the place of execution. Now Paul takes the metaphor to its logical conclusion. We must not only take up our cross and walk in it, but actually see that the execution takes place. We are actually to take the flesh, our willful and wayward self, and nail it to the cross. Don't administer first aid to it. Don't try to run it off and expect it to not come back. Don't try to even put it in a cage. Do not try to reason with it. Crucify your flesh with all of its passions and desires every day, your every day your flesh will try to come down off that cross every single day. It will seek to control your life. It will call you to look at porn. It will call you to forego prayer. It will call you to, to gossip about that church member. It will call you to to not confess sin, to not ask for your spouse's forgiveness. It will call you to, to lose your temper with your kids. It will call you to drink too much. It will call you to harbor bitterness. It will call you to not share the gospel with your neighbors and coworkers. But Christ is calling you to come and die. Christ is calling you to crucify your flesh with all of its passions and desires. He's calling you to the way of the cross. Now, as we approach the end here, there are a few things you need to know about this way of the cross. It's painful. It's a process, but it's paid for. First, it's painful. The you know, crucifixion in, in the Roman Empire was slow, it was a slow and gruesome form of execution. That forced the condemned criminal to to suffer as they died. Some have even said that, that crucifixion was the most painful way of execution ever invented. It was unspeakably excruciating. And in the same way, crucifying your flesh, crucifying your sin nature, walking in the spirit is painful. Now, it's not, it's not painful to your actual bodies if you had to actually like, physically abuse yourself to please God. That's not what's being called for here, not at all. But to your soul, emotionally, spiritually, it can feel torturous sometimes. It at times feels like death, and it feels that way because in a very real sense, it's death. It is death to self. It's death to flesh, death to sin. Our sinful nature loves to sin against God. Sometimes, you know, it, 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 it feels good to give in, and it feels horrible to deny yourself. But that's why it's called crucifixion and mortification. And if, if, you're, if you're not a Christian or you're a new Christian, you may have heard someone tell you that if you become a Christian, all your problems go away. Life becomes easier or more simple. But that's just simply not the case. Christianity is death to self. It's dying to your wicked and evil desires. You know, the the church is, is not a museum of victorious saints. It's a morgue of crucified sinners. In some ways, things in your life become more complicated and painful because you're at war with what is evil in you. It's painful. Second, it's a process. Crucifixion was a slow kind of death. Sometimes as one was being crucified, they would linger up there on the cross for days before giving up the ghost. One would be suffocating. And so they would use the nail stake through their feet to prop themselves up to give them some relief in their lungs. But then that would become too painful, so they'd sink back down and start to suffocate again. And then they'd prop themselves back up and then sink back down. It took a long time. They'd sink back down. They would slowly suffocate to death in utter pain and agony. It's a very gradual process. And so it is with our flesh. Our flesh is slowly being suffocated. And it's dying a, a long, slow death. You know, you, you, you may hear certain Christian leaders tell you that you know there are two classes of Christians. There's carnal Christians and, and spiritual Christians. You may hear that there's like the second blessing of the, the spirit in the Christian life that sets you free from that nagging flesh. You may hear that, that the solution to the problem of our sin is like spiritual psychotherapy or, or seminars on the higher Christian life or, 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 or higher education or something like that. But it's just not the case. The only option in the Christian life is the process of daily crucifixion. Daily picking up that cross and crucifying the flesh with all of its passions and desires. And listen, there will be times in your Christian life where growth is not so evident. There will be times in your life where you feel stuck in a particular sin. There will be times in your life where you're pleading with God to take away the temptation, pleading with him to take away the desire for this particular sin, to take away the thoughts that keep coming back over and over and over again. You just can't seem to get any relief. You feel stuck. It's a gradual process. But there's good news because thirdly, and in conclusion, it's paid for. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with all of its passions and desires. Paul speaks about it in the past tense because it's a sure thing. It's a sure thing because we belong to Jesus Christ. He has paid for us through his crucifixion, through his suffering and death, his agonist death. He has redeemed us. He has purchased us. Christian, you, you belong to him. You're no longer your own. You have been crucified with Christ, so it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And his love for you is so great that he saves you from the penalty of sin. And not only that, he's also saving you from the power of sin. He not only saves you from sin's condemnation, but he's also saving you from sin's control. He not only justifies you, but he is also sanctifying you right now, which which means that that you have been given full and free and and eternal forgiveness in Christ, and Christ is actually gradually growing in you Christ-likeness. The gospel saves us from sin's penalty, and the gospel is saving us from sin's power. And he guarantees that it will be done and that it will be brought to completion. As Paul writes in Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He's not fighting a losing battle. He cannot lose. Your flesh is no match for him. Your your flesh has already received its mortal wound, and you have received the Spirit as a guarantee That your crucifixion, the crucifixion of your flesh, will be completed in the day of Christ Jesus. It's not an if, it's a when. And it's on that day that all who carried the cross now will receive the crown of everlasting resurrection life in Christ Jesus. Those who practice the works of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. But those who crucify the flesh with all of its passions and desires will inherit the kingdom of God. Of God. He who calls you is faithful. Surely he will do it. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to pick up our crosses, to daily follow Jesus, to crucify our flesh with all of its passions and desires and to live in the power of the Spirit. God, as we come now to this time of communion, would you open our eyes to behold Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, whose crucifixion paid for the penalty of our sins and that purchased our sanctification and sins losing its power over us. And would you help us to be thankful? Or give us eyes to see as you have given us ears to hear. We need you in Jesus' name, amen.